Hello, it's Peter Wright and Kathleen Beauvais with another episode of the Yacking Show Business Channel. And this is the show and the channel where we bring you expert guests to give you actionable business tips and ideas so you can survive and thrive with your business in the interesting times we seem to be heading into, no matter where you live in the world. We do that with interesting guests, as I said, but first, let's introduce co-host Kathleen. Hi, Kathleen. How are you today? I'm doing great, Peter. Thank you so much. And thank you also very much for tuning into our show. We so appreciate having you. And as Peter mentioned, we do have another special guest with us today. So, so excited to welcome Richard Moran to the show. Hello, Richard. How are you? Hello, Kathleen. I'm great. Great to be with you. Now, Richard is a renowned Silicon Valley business leader, a national radio host, and best-selling author. Richard's uh, latest book, Never Say Whatever, How Small Decisions Make a Big Difference, takes a closer look at this whatever mentality and its effects on our lives and the workforce. So let's just jump right in, Richard. Can you explain why you are so concerned with this whatever mentality and expand on that? Sure. Well, I hate that word. And when I do a survey, I'll, I'll give a speech and I'll, I'll say, how many of you hate the word whatever? Everyone raises their hand. I'll ask them, how many of you say the word whatever? Mm-hmm. And hardly anybody will raise their hand. And I say, you're all lying because <laughs> every, everybody, everybody <laughs> says it. But two things happen when you say the word whatever. One is you come across as a slacker or you know a pothead or you just it's it's lazy it's a lazy word but the most important thing and this is what people don't know is that when you say whatever you're not making a decision and every time you say whatever you know you might be missing something and people say well you know i i only use it on small decisions i only say whatever when it's small decisions and the truth is they're all small decisions. Mm-hmm. And some researchers at Cornell have discovered or found that we make about 30,000 small decisions every day, every single wow. day. This is a good example. 30, I mean, your listeners are making decisions as we speak. You mm-hmm. know, should I should I watch? Should I put it on mute? Should I be doing Facebook at the same time? Should I take the dog out? Should I answer the door? I mean, real time, people are making decisions. And every time you say whatever about any of those small decisions, you might not get what you want. And whether it's the workplace or whether it's in your personal life, I'm trying, I've become the evangelist for people to stop saying whatever. As simple as that. That The whole book is that. Stop saying whatever and you'll be happier. Oh, well then, Very good. I, I share your sentiments on that exactly. And I, I grew up, as we were talking earlier, in a culture that... I had never used whatever used in that sense until I came to North America. Um, perhaps it was a British thing. I, I don't know. So <clears throat> I, I have an observation that decision-making ability has deteriorated in the last few years. So would you agree with that? And, and what do you think the reasons are for that, Richard? Well, I think I think COVID put a blight on every skill mm-hmm. that, that we have developed. And I think COVID in some ways made us lazy on small decisions. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, a good example at work is there's a Zoom meeting. So should I put on a shirt and let the video show me or should I put it on no video and mute? Which is, you know, that's a whatever decision. Mm-hmm. No, mm-hmm. If you want your boss to know who you are, 
he or she needs to see you on the Zoom. He or she yeah. needs to see that you're participating, and he or she needs to see that you removed all the drug paraphernalia from from the background. So, so, so to answer your question, Peter, I, I think I think it's gotten worse, and I think in some ways people have given up. And mm-hmm. when you give up, then you say whatever because my decision doesn't matter. My attitude doesn't matter. And in fact, Peter, you'd you'd be interested in this. One of the people I interviewed for the book was a very successful entrepreneur who's from Africa. He's from Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And he said in Africa, they may not say whatever, but they shrug their shoulders or roll their eyes because anything they say doesn't matter. Yeah. So whatever, I give up. And there's so many, so many meanings for the word but it's all, all the meanings are toxic. Some, somebody told me, and I love this, that it's like the F word because there's so many meanings for this word, yes. but it's worse because the F word can be sort of benign, but every time you say whatever, it's not benign it's toxic. It's, yeah. it hurts you. <clears throat> so that's my message. Just right. stop, Interesting. stop saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. So when you talk about uh, some leadership lessons that you learned from uh, the Silicon Valley, can you, can you Mm -hmm. tell us about those? Yeah. Well, I learned some both good and bad lessons. Um, Before I get into Silicon Valley, my favorite story in the book is one from uh, the former head of the federal aviation administration. This is the man who was in charge of all aviation in the United States. And I think in Canada, you have the same thing. Um, and he said they have one measure at the FAA, only one measure. And that is, did the same number of planes land as took off on any given day? So he said, there is no whatever in the FAA. <laughs> and I learned that in some work, you know, can you imagine, you know, the pilot is coming in for the for the landing and, he, and he's talking to air, air traffic control. And, and they said, well, you know, runway left or runway light. And the air traffic control person says, whatever. No, you can't <laughs> do that. Um, so in Silicon Valley, um, I think that whatever is not typically used. I mean, people are more likely to go for it than not. Where I see it happening, and it is so uh, so pertains to the book, is on small decisions. So the example I used in the book, and it was true, where a woman entrepreneur had a really successful startup, had received millions of dollars in startup money. And every time she was faced with a small expense decision, like, should I go to this conference? Can I take my friend with me? Can we buy some t-shirts? She would say, whatever. It's a small, it's a small cost, you know, and pretty soon they ran out of money because all those little expenses <laughs> added up. And so mm-hmm. she learned the lesson that those small expense decisions sometimes add up. And if the worst thing that can happen to an early stage company is you run out of money and oh, for sure. that's what they did. <clears throat> yeah. So the, so the lesson there was small decisions matter in, in early stage companies, especially when it's uh, related to cost. But I think it's also true on the other end that, you know, early stage uh, in, you know, entrepreneurs and inventors need to take risks and it's not whatever. It's not, should I do this or not? Whatever. It's yes, let's go for it. Let's get these customers. Let's develop this product. You know, and the example that everybody talks about 
even though I'm a little tired of him, uh, may he rest in peace, is Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. Steve Jobs didn't say whatever. Mm-hmm. No. Yes. And so, and it's also Steve Jobs. Also, pe- people point to Steve Jobs as a guy who used his gut in decision making. Mm-hmm. He didn't do a lot of spreadsheets. He didn't do a lot of pivot tables. He used his gut. And so I get the question is, should I should I use my gut in making decisions? And the answer is, yes, but. Mm-hmm. If your gut is informed, if you have a gut that is knowledgeable, yes, use it. Steve Jobs used his gut because he had 30 years of experience developing products and technology. That's why his gut worked. But if you're 20 years old and you're making a big decision, don't use, you know, if your gut is informed, fine. But the chances are your gut needs to be a little more developed. And so so there's other ways to make decisions other than your gut that I talk about in the book. And and I should mention uh, also, Peter and Kathleen, that there's a lot of books written about decision-making and most of them are pretty complicated, pretty complex that involve, you know, technology and flux capacitors and pivot tables and who knows what. There's not a book written about whatever, because mm-hmm. this is about the small decisions, not the big yeah. decisions. So, so yeah. what accounts for this this attitude, this whatever attitude that has built up in the last, what is it, in the last 20 years? Yeah. And well, is it, it just laziness? Is it, what is it? Is it just a new attitude of these, of, of the younger people? What I don't know. Well, don't there's somebody I blame for all of this. It's Alicia Silverstone in the movie Clueless. Remember? I, remember in Alicia Silverstone would, you know, create the W with her fingers and and say whatever. And that movie was really popular. And she p- pushed the word right to the front of the conscience consciousness. So so it's become acceptable to say that word. And it's morphed a little bit in the US anyway into it is what it is. It is yeah. what it is is another is another way to say whatever. And I hate both of them. It's, mm-hmm. it, it isn't what it is. Change it. it you yeah. don't have to deal. You don't have to say it is what it is. Um, but it is a little bit of an apathy. Uh, well, it's a lot of apathy. It's mm-hmm. a lot of, I don't care. The most prevalent way that whatever is expressed is I don't care. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, you should care. Um, it, but it can also mean, I don't like you. It can also mean, this is one that I learned in consulting. It can mean you make the decision for me and I'll blame you later. That's right. Yeah. 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 And, or it can mean I'm helpless. It can be dismissive. The, 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 the reason, the way I hear it often in, in personal anecdotes is when uh, someone comes home from dinner and their partner says, uh, what would you like for dinner, honey? And he or she says, whatever. Well, no. I mean, then you're going to get whatever you may or may not like. That's right. <laughs> um, because it's so dismissive. It's, yes. it's yeah. you know, people say, I want to slap you. Um, <laughs> but it, I, I'm so, I think that if people realized how many, how many small decisions we make, that they would snap out of it. And the, 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 the most uh, current example I use is about lunch. These same guys, these same researchers in Cornell discovered that when you go out to lunch, you make about 300 decisions, where to go, where to sit, 
who to go with, you know, turkey, roast beef, lettuce and tomato, mayonnaise, whole wheat, rye. You can imagine where it all goes. And every time you say whatever, you may not go out to lunch with someone that you like to a place that you want and yeah. get the sandwich that you want. And it says, you know, so it's very simple. I try mm-hmm. to make it simple. Here's here's one for you. I've been thinking about this while you've been talking, and, and I'm going to ask you if it's a generational thing, but not just generational. If I look at my generation, most of people's my age in North America and Europe, their parents, one or both, served to some degree in World War II, right? If we look in North in 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 your country in the States, most forty year olds had a parent one uncle who served in Vietnam and let's not get into the argument of whether they should or shouldn't have been in Vietnam, but they mm-hmm. were exposed to military discipline. I did 10 years national service in Rhodesia, basic training, and then in and out of the army for 10 years. And I found that the discipline in the military and it's good and bad, but the one good thing that comes out of it is you don't say whatever or any other equivalent, because if you have to make a decision life, it might be a life and death decision, even a small one. Right. Yeah. So, that's instilled into you. So that influence is largely worn off because the last Vietnam veterans are what in their sixties now. Um, any other major con- any other conflict has been small and regional and restricted to permanent force members by and large. Do you think that has something to do with it, the lack of military influence? I I think if I if I can generalize the the point, sure, Peter, that um, when you're in an organization where the intent is clear. You learn how to make decisions. And it's such an important part of the book. So in the military, for example, your intent was to take the hill or or not get killed. Or so so all of your decisions were based on that intent. If you're in the theater company and your intent is to be successful, all of your decisions are based on Mm -hmm. that play being successful. If you're on a team and your intent is to win the league, then all your decisions are about that. And what has happened is people have lost the clarity about their intent. So when you wake up in the morning, your intent could be whatever, it's another day, whatever. No, your intent should be to have a good day, finish the project, start the book, finish, you know, get a job, whatever it might be. So all the leaders I interviewed, it came out so clear that they don't say whatever because as a leader, they are able to clarify their intentions on a daily basis. And right. it is so I hope I didn't dismiss your your military background, but it is so clear that intentions are what make decisions easier and get you out of that whatever bucket. Yeah, I know you, you, you've reinforced what I was trying to say. You put it much more eloquently than I did in that. Um, that's what I was trying to say. When there's a purpose and an intent, it's easy. It's easier to make those decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and people I, say, I, well, uh, you know, just to, sorry to interrupt, but people say, well, you no, know, no. I don't have any big intentions. Well, it, it could be down to something like it, you know, if your intent is to lose weight, then your decisions are about being on a diet. If your intention is to run a marathon, then your decisions are to get in shape and eat properly. I mean, it 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 can be down to the most basic level. It doesn't have to be a grand, you know, intention to save world, you know, save world hunger. 
No, but if you don't get the little ones right, when you suddenly off, and a lot of people get faced with some major unexpected decision-making in their lives, if you haven't been in the habit of making the small decisions, you're really stumped right. when it comes to making the big ones, right? That's that's a yes. huge problem. Just something I want to throw in on intent is is I've been a horse rider for most of my life. And uh, I know my father was a horse rider and, and taught me how to ride. And when you're teaching a horse to jump, if you go up to that jump wondering whether the horse will jump or not, the horse will not jump. If your intention <laughs> is that horse is going to go over the jump, by and large, it will go over the jump. And I remember my dad drilling this into me, saying, don't have 1% hesitation because otherwise you will be on the ground and the horse won't be over the jump. So yes. it comes back to intent all over again. And that, that sticks mm -hmm. in my mind. Good. good story. Yeah. So actions follow intent. You you mentioned that on the website. And I think you, you've given us a very good picture of, of why that should be. So. Mm -hmm. So back so, to you, back to you, Kathleen. And and it's hard. I I don't want to dismiss. It's hard to clarify your intent all the time. Oh yeah, yeah. It, that's the hard part. Decisions can be, you know, decisions are easier when you clarify your intent, but it's hard to clarify your intent. So right. very much so. You say that self awareness isn't a soft skill. Can you explain that? Yeah. Well, I in my interviews, I also recognize that the leaders who are very self aware we're able to make decisions more effectively as well. And it, it could be as simple as one leader said, you know, I recognize that I'm not great at details. I'm good at relationships. I'm good at developing sales. I'm good at customer service, but you keep on giving me all this data. I'm not even going to look at it. So he was self-aware enough to make decisions that he surrounded himself with people who are good at details. Mm -hmm. So it's, it, it, People, when I, when people hear about being self-aware, people often assume that's about like being in a Zen mode or something. It's not. It's mm -hmm. being honest with yourself about what you're good at and what you're not good at. If you're afraid of heights, be truthful. I mean, don't make the decision to do a bungee jump. <laughs> if you're, I mean, it's, yeah, it's all related to that being brutally honest with yourself and in so doing once again, the decisions will be will be easier, but it's hard to do. You don't push a button mm -hmm. and say, "Okay, I'm going to be self aware today." Um, and I found that people, the leaders who are self aware, just exude that self awareness and were so confident in talking to me about decision making and the word whatever that it just was uh, uh, an eye opener for me. That I mean, that I could just see it. They were so, you know, I could see it and hear it in their tone of voice. And it might have been, Peter, just like you talking about the horse. You know, if you're self, you know, the horse is going to be reticent to make that jump if you're not self-aware enough to say, you got to do this, Mr. Yep. Horsey. Yeah. And, and animals are so much better at body language and unspoken intentions than humans, and they pick it yeah. up so quickly. But humans do too, and we don't appreciate that. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the importance of taking risks, and I agree 100%. And I've taken a lot of risks in my life, and some have worked and some haven't. But in, in this modern age, and I think this is tied in a little bit with what we were talking about earlier, why are so many people risk-adverse, and, and how does this handicap them? Yeah. Um I think sometimes it's just easier. It's easier not to take okay. a risk. And um, 
I have always been one who, if I don't like something, I make a change. And sometimes it's a risk. If I don't like my job, I make a change. If I don't like my friends, I make a change. If I don't like my college major, I make a change. But, but it's, but it's hard to do and sometimes risky, but once again, this faced with decisions, good leaders well, are not afraid to take a risk and mm-hmm. should it and often it's the the decision is between as is which is the straight and narrow or should i take a risk and in uh uh, uh kathleen i know you're enamored with ireland and i was just there and the irish have been i, I tell this story with love that they have been very risk averse and often when they were faced with the decision, should I take a job with the government, which is easy and not risky and make 50,000 euros a year, or should I take a risk and make 40,000 euros a year, but own 10% of the company? Typically, they took the easy route. And it's only recently that they've taken the the more risky route, and they've built a, an entire innovation economy around it. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of a good, you know, sort of world example. But the other thing that I discovered, and it comes out of some of the research from Daniel Pink, that regrets in our lives are based on the decisions that we did not make. Did not make. Not the Absolutely. decisions. Not the decisions we made. Yeah. I should have gone to graduate school. I could have been a lawyer. I should have married that woman that I loved so long ago or man. Uh, and those are the regrets based on not taking a risk. Yep. Yeah. And, yep. and those that's terrible. So those are the, so we can't avoid regrets. No, we can't. But, so but here's the decisions what, that we don't make are the ones that we regret. Right. Abs- absolutely. Here's, I, I'm going to throw in a subsidiary one here again, while you were talking, I was thinking of this one bearing in mind both risk people being risk averse, having difficulty making decisions, using whatever, has life for many people in the West in Western societies become a little bit too comfortable? Because I, I would guess that in the Middle Ages, no matter where you lived, you didn't have the luxury of using whatever anywhere near as much as you can get away with now. I yeah, you know, well I think that's that's true and I heard a, a speech recently from, it was the governor of California. I'm a fan, Gavin Newsom. Uh, and he said that it's possible to grow up today and be 50 years old and have never known fear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're, there's no fear about being going hungry. There's no fear about being deported there's no you know and and it's and and it can lead to your comment it can lead to a little bit of laziness which is a real symptom of whatever um but i think that um in the middle ages you you know there wasn't a lot of whatever because you were either going to get killed or be killed Uh, (laughs) there wasn't a whatever there but uh, i i think i i think that lazy we can be lazy today because everything is so convenient yeah yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that too. Back to you, Kathleen. So you've told us a little bit about your book. Is there anything else you'd like to share about it? I just, you know, I, whether you buy the book or not, I hope that you hear the message that those small decisions matter and saying whatever is not going to be helpful to your happiness or success or relationships in any given way. 
Right. So and it's wait, about whatever in business, it's whatever throughout your life. Yeah. Your personal yeah. Life. yeah. No, that's a lot. I must remember. Where can, where can people get it, Richard? Yes. It's everywhere. It, everywhere. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It's uh, my publisher, McGraw-Hill, was great in uh, helping to shape the book and pub- and get it out there. So it's, uh, I don't want to send everybody to Amazon or Barnes & Noble because it's so convenient and that makes you lazy. Um, but it's all, it's in bookstores. It's everywhere. It's okay. it, what I'm finding is that companies are buying 300 copies of it and having me do a zoom wow. because they don't want to create a whatever culture in their organizations. Oh, very and good. That's, that's been fun. That's, uh, that's excellent. Richard, do you have a copy of that book handy that you can show up? Uh, there's, there's the book. The book. And, here's the book. And, for our audio listeners, there'll be a link to that book and Richard's website on the in the description on whatever platform you happen to be listening to this on. So, Richard, I've got what I call my burning question, which I ask all we ask all our successful business guests, and that is, with all the people you've met, all the work you've done on decision making and stopping trying to stop people using whatever. Is there a single characteristic or or habit or mindset that sets successful business leaders apart from those that remain average or never really make it? Is it one thing or more complicated than that? I'm I'm probably going to give you answers that are atypical because I find two things that, and I, I pride myself on this myself, two skills that I really value and I see in really successful people is one is they're good listeners Mm-hmm. And and they listen, they listen and make decisions based on listening, and they form opinions based on listening. And the second thing trait that I uh, really admire in, in effective leaders is they're generous. Okay, they're generous with they're generous with their time. They're generous with compensation. They're generous with uh, relationships. And <clears throat> I would guess that you see a lot of or hear from a lot of leaders that talk about. You know they're aggressive, they're persuasive, but I like I like leaders who are both good listeners and generous. And I can point mm-hmm. to some, but I won't because they probably don't even know that they do both of those things in an effective way. Right. Well, you know, that... we ask this question of, of of pretty much all of our guests, and you would, you know, you probably wouldn't believe this, but one of the things that they, that never comes up as to a measure of success is formal education. No one ever says, Oh yes, I go and get that MBA or, you know, that PhD or what have you. Ed- formal education is never part of the answer to that question. That's and- right. And no one, or, no one that I can recall has said aggressive aggression or be or persuasiveness. The majority of people say somewhat similar to you, Asking questions, curiosity, constant learning. Those are three that come up time and time again. If you say perseverance, determination, persistence, sure. But um, it, it's it's a narrow a narrow band of about, I don't know, 12 traits that come up time and time again. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, Richard. That's very interesting. Yeah. And uh, note... Note also, Kathleen, I have a PhD and it and it didn't matter. This is not a PhD kind of book. This is a this is a prescriptive, funny and direct book. It's not based on anything PhD ish. Well, okay, I've, really I've got to... I've got to sorry, Kathleen, before you ask Richard what you're gonna ask him, I've got to ask another one. Um <laughs> that is you just mentioned that you do Zoom calls for corporations who buy a large number of 
and copies of your book for their people. So can people contact you through your website for that? Yes. And is that something you, you could set up? Yeah, That's, it's okay. richardmoran.com. But also I'm active on LinkedIn and as the rest of the world is, and, and I respond to messages on LinkedIn. So uh, I am uh, happy to connect and I, I'm. Uh, it relates to my uh, earlier comments about being a good listener and being generous. Mm-hmm. Gen- mm-hmm. I am. I try to be generous with uh, over-the-counter advice and uh, listen to your problems. Well, I was going to ask you how people can contact you. Well, you obviously said with LinkedIn. Is there an, any other way that you would recommend? Uh, the, my website, richardmoran.com. There's a message box there. And um, in both cases, I, I do look at what people say, good or bad. Fantastic. Wow. <laughs> we we will put that certainly and oh that that's great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I really enjoyed listening to you today. That was good. And back to Kathleen to wrap it up. Go ahead, Richard. Was there something you Well I, I was gonna say I what I hear from lots of people and uh Peter, I think this is gonna be true of you, especially that after you hear me talk, I've put an earwig in your ear that every time now you hear that word or are about to say it, you're going to say, ah, I can't do it. It's an earwig. (laughs) What you've done is nurtured the earwig because ever since I've been, (laughs) I've been in Canada for just on 20 years. And ever since I've been here, that word has irritated me intensely (laughs) because as I said earlier, I didn't grow up with it. Right. So, um, so you've nurtured the earwig and uh, helped it grow. So I will act on it. Thank you, Richard. Okay. Oh, now I'm self-conscious. I hope I haven't, you haven't found me saying that too much. I didn't, I didn't hear it. (laughs) Don't feel guilty. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much. It was, uh, it was a pleasure having you on our show today, Richard. And uh, thank you all once again for tuning into our show. If anyone is interested in being a guest on our show, please visit us at theyackingshow.com. All you need to do is click on the contacts tab where you will find a short application form and we would love to hear from you. So until next time, take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.